Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversations, episode number four, Greta Brinkman. Um, I've kind of been, I guess, a passing acquaintance of Greta's for many years. I originally encountered her in New York, and somehow we figured out we were both Richmond transplants, um, and I've been friends with her through various kinds of social media for a while, and we... I have occasionally played the same band showcases together, other bands we are no longer in. Um, I asked Greta if she'd like to sit down. We had a really great conversation in her uh, practice space, uh, the drug lord practice space, while she was changing her bass strings. And uh, this conversation was really what I want them to be like. Uh, A lot of riffing and jamming, like just kind of, we talk about this, we talk about that, we see where it takes us. I try to edit this stuff as little as possible, if at all, because it's the whole point of it, is just what happens when two people start talking. So it's not a, again, these are not interviews in a traditional sense. I mean, it does happen that some people have bands and they have things to promote, and I really want to do that. I want to um, uh, raise the signal on those kinds of things, and yet, you know, we're not out to... um, specifically focus on that so um remember Greta remarking at one point this was this conversation this interview ranged more widely than any she'd been involved in previously so um anyway it's I it's this why I'm doing it and I really I did enjoy this one a lot um we get into some good stuff and uh so having said that I've gotten some feedback from people who are listening to these podcast and I would love to get more. I really want to make this a uh, a self-sustaining project and to that end I have added a page on the website where you can support the process. Um, I'm not going to regularly be begging for money or anything but if you do feel that you want to support me doing this you can go on there and make a PayPal payment. Because uh, I do, I mean, a lot of people who are listening to this are friends of mine who have encouraged me to, you know, stop driving a forklift and do something a little more in line with my uh, passions and gifts. And so I'm doing it, but I obviously need to pay the rent and keep the lights on and all of that. So if any of you out there are interested in helping that be a reality, I put that button on there. But, uh, you know, it's really not why I'm doing it. I am doing it because I've just always wanted to, and I find this shit fascinating. So, um, without further ado, we'll get to Greta Brinkman. And we're rolling. So, we're here in the the drug lord practice space. With Greta Brinkman. I'm changing my bass strings because drug lord is going to record this weekend. And I only change my bass strings about every five years, so this is a momentous occasion. How long, so those those strings have been on that bass for five years? Easily. I don't remember the last time they were changed. Wow. They're GHS bass boomers. They last forever. Sure. It's just when they start getting rusty that you got to exactly. change them. And those appear to be in pretty good shape. Do you keep them clean yourself? I Do you don't. wipe them down? Nope. Nope. I'm the worst. I mean, people always want to talk gear with me, and, you know... Uh, gauges and watts and different types of speakers and blah 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 and honest to god I have no interest in any of that stuff as long as you can plug it in and it works 
I'm really not fussy. I mean, I know what works, which is Galleon Kruger and GHS-based boomers, and that's all I need to know, really. Yeah, I kind of have that attitude, too. But what is the gauge on those bass trains? I mean, you can read it off the know. package right now, can you? Um, <laughs> well, if, you, if, the tech, if tech heads are listening and they're really interested, um, I have here a five-string Carvin. But in my opinion, if it has to be played on five strings, it doesn't need to be played on a bass. So what I do is take off the top string, the, uh, the lightest one, and I just play the four bottom strings. Because yes. we are a doom band and everything is tuned down to B. And that is how many steps below normal? Which is A? It's like four frets or below. E. What is it, A or E, that the, is the normal tuning? E is the normal tuning. Yeah. And so we are tuned down four frets, four steps. Wow. And the basses, the strings will still stay on the bass when you're tuned down that low and they don't Yeah, well, if you wind. have a five-string bass, they're made for that. Oh, I see. You wouldn't want to tune a normal bass this way because it would really flap and it'd be bad for your truss rod. So the 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 lower string is the extra string is a lower string or the extra string is a higher string normally. Um, in my case, the extra string is a low a low B would be added to a regular set. So the elephants would really be into drug lord because it's at a lower really low frequency that they can only hear. Really, is that true <laughs> about elephants? Yeah, the elephants are like dogs in reverse. They really. Can, uh-huh. They hear lower frequencies that we can't hear, those big ears. They probably feel a lot of things through their feet, too, I bet. So uh, is Drug Lord the only band you're in right now? Currently it is. Um, After a moderately fulfilling career in New York City, I came back to Richmond, um, and I was playing in two bands, a hardcore band called White Cross and this doom band called Drug Lord. Um, But White Cross turned out to be, it wasn't a great investment return on I mean we practiced for like five hours a week but we only played twice a year right so um, I wanted to do better things with my time so I waited until we had recorded something that I was actually happy with which it came out pretty well and then we kind of all decided to quit at the same time so I didn't have to be the asshole who broke up the band and White Cross had existed previously right that is that yes. a- White Cross is an original hardcore band one of the very f- the very first groundbreaking you know Fast and Furious blistering hardcore from, I think, 1982. Um, I was, of course, not in the band at the time. And the funny part, Richmond being such a small town, um, I ended up replacing the original bassist who had been my boyfriend. And then Tommy Rodriguez ended up replacing the original guitarist who was his brother. So it was very much an all-in-the-family kind of thing. The, this replacing happened recently? or In the last few years, yeah. White Cross had broken up for quite a while, and then they got back together. Like 20, 30 years? Something like, something that, like that, yeah. yeah. Oh, who is this? Is Crispy? Crispy is the singer. Singer, yeah. And Rob Mosby was the drummer. Never seen that band. And I was not a, um, a hardcore initiate in Richmond. And at that time, I guess I was in middle school and high school and I was a lot more interested in hair metal uh-huh. it was I, before my time too I didn't even move here till 1985 so you weren't in the original incarnation of White Cross no okay what is your uh, tr- like have you been orbiting around Richmond um, off and on for a long time or where are you from originally um, I was born overseas and then raised in central Pennsylvania the home of Penn State University, which is a terrible, awful little provincial shithole full of really unhappy, unpleasant, close-minded people, basically coal miners, mm-hmm. who are suspicious of everything. Um, there was a tiny little punk rock scene, though, and I was in a band there. 
and that band that I was in played with White Cross, and then Dewey and I fell, fell in love, and he moved to Pennsylvania. He quit White Cross and moved to Pennsylvania to live with me, but then we realized quickly that there wasn't really anything going on in State College, Pennsylvania, music-wise, so we both moved down here and started Unseen Force. Uh, before we get into Unseen Force, you said you were born overseas. Um, where was that? In South Africa, Cape really? Town. Yeah, just by accident, though. I'm not a boer. Boer? I don't know how to pronounce it. Is that a, a white South African? A white South African, yeah. No, my parents are American. My dad was working for um, the World Health Organization, and they had sent him there to do something about surveys for nutrition in children or something like that. So I happened to be born there. How old were you when you left South Africa? We moved to Trinidad from there, and then we lived in Trinidad till I was seven, and that's when we came to the States. So seven years old is when you moved into the provincial little exactly. Pennsylvania town. Yeah. Now, how, what was the birth of you not having a provincial mentality? Was it your father being a World Health Organization kind of person? And your, um, did Was the household somewhat cosmopolitan, even though you were living in this? Well, that's a really good question. No one's ever asked me that. I think, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of speculation about uh, nature versus nurture and genetics and stuff. Sure. But in every generation of my father's side of the family, there's been one female who never gets married and travels around the world a whole lot. And I guess in my case, uh, that's me. (laughs) So you can't put your finger on the point where you stop. I I just knew that I felt so unwelcome and so frustrated and claustrophobic in, in Pennsylvania that I needed to get out. And you know nothing wrong with people who stay in the same place their whole town. Ta- you know so- the whole town, the same town their whole lives. They don't seem to mind, but that's not me. I can't even get a job. I can't even stand a job where I'm in the same office every single day for five days a week. Right. Well, pr- I mean, provincial is not a cuss word. I mean, like it. It's it's only for people who really like the alternative. But I can, you know, I can also. I mean, I'm not a provincial person, and I have had my own trajectory of moving to larger cities to get into the to answer that that yearning or mm-hmm. whatever it is but I do also I guess I appreciate a small town as long as it's not uh, there's not a lot of hate there right that's the problem how, how do you find a small town that isn't just really backwards Americans in general too they just don't travel enough and they're really not aware that there's a world out there because our we, we don't learn anything about geography or the rest of the world honestly let's let's be honest yeah we, we're just very unaware and very self-centered yeah, I think we're really encouraged to be that, and I, I, I think that we live in a uh, strange kind of uh, fascist society that isn't. The fascism doesn't come from a totalitarian government; it comes from the private sector. We're really trying to keep us focused on buying their goods and services, and I don't think the intent behind it is evil or oppressive. It just it's what marketing mm-hmm. and. Um, that all of that sales communication that has gone into selling stuff to people has produced, you know, it's produced uh, us like turning to specific, the average mainstream American just trusting, uh, you know, what's coming out of the television and not looking much past that. You know, I don't think it's a, I think in some cases it's willful, but I think in other cases it's just, uh, I mean, it's a different kind of ignorance. It's like uh, we've just sort of, they've been sort of led to the, led there, kept there. Um, by a seemingly benign form of entertainment. Do you disagree or agree? Or do you know what the <laughs> hell I'm talking about? 
Um, yeah, in a nutshell, I, I would have to agree with that. But you don't. There wasn't anybody in that town that you knew that was also like you that you. There was a small, tiny. There was maybe. 20, maybe 15, maybe 20 of us. I want to call us, we called ourselves Punky Wavers. Mm-hmm. This was during the disco era when disco sucks. And mm-hmm. uh, we would, I mean, it's so corny and cheese ball, but we got to, we would get together and we, at the time there was boom boxes. So we had a boom box and we would go down and hang out on the street corner there with our boom box playing, I don't know, Sex Pistols and Ramones and stuff like that. And total social outcasts, of course, we were. And I got, Plenty of verbal abuse, had pizza thrown at me out of a car and stuff like that. I mean, nothing, you know, it's not like it wasn't a Los Angeles-style beatdown from the skinheads or anything, but it was enough to make you feel really alienated and unwelcome. And you're how old at this point? I was 17, maybe. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that goes, feeling alienated goes with the territory at that point, and then to to have, be aggressively uh, treated that way. Certainly, fuel a desire to get the hell out of mm-hmm. such a town. But so, Punky Wavers was a, uh, a combination of new wave and <laughs> yeah, punk. and punk rock. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, because the town was that small and the movement was that young that there wasn't really the delineations that it came to be later on. Later on, when hardcore became, you know, dominant, it just became such a case of rules and regulations. It became almost more restrictive than. The system that it was trying to upset. Yeah. Well, and you, you're somebody, I mean, you've had experience with um, playing with uh, Deborah Harry, mm-hmm. right, at one point. Yep. And Blondie, um, which is considered part of the original punk scene out of New York and CBGBs, right, mm-hmm. was not something that the mohawked, like, studded, pierced, safety pin, ripped up guys would have identified with punk probably not no as that happened later on they would have definitely spat upon it and called it new wave right that's very it's a very ironic thing that this sort of liberating <laughs> movement of what punk rock was originally became another kind of a it didn't take long it was like practically two weeks before it was just all rules regulations and uniforms yeah we seem to <laughs> we seem to like uniforms in America we don't want our government to our, uh, give them to us, but we want to pick them <laughs> for ourselves, <laughs> and then adhere. Well, if to you it. if you read at all into um, just sort of, I don't know what the field is actually called, but a guy named Desmond Morris has a great deal of wonderful insight. Basically, that we're all apes. He wrote two books that I know of: The Naked Ape and something like the Na- the Naked Ape in Cities. Um, his theory is that we're all just basically not that far removed from our primate relatives and all humans like to be in a tribe less than 120 big and they like to uh, and part of human nature is also to cleave to your own kind and kind of hate everybody else so that's a thing that is you know really inborn in humans and it's very hard to overcome anybody who tries to be more broadly humanist has a real struggle both within themselves to get over that sort of natural tendency and then to um, to try to be that way in the world is also quite difficult I agree. I've been thinking about this and talking about this lately, and the the nature nurture thing. I mean, according to anthropologists, we have had the same size brain and been an anatomically, you know, Homo um, Homo sapiens sapien for two hundred thousand years. 
Okay, I'll buy that. So this, you know, and I've been going around saying this, and people raise their eyebrows at me. So I, I redid my research recently, and I read a bunch of different things about it. Two hundred thousand years, as in that's a long time, or that's not very long at all. Oh, in that no brains have been growing, and there's all this kind of stuff that's been happening to humans in the interim. And no, my understanding was, and then I confirmed it, is that biologically we're the same. Um, animals that were running around the savanna 200,000 years ago in Africa. I do believe that. So the, the nature part of that is that we have the um, normal instincts that animals have, um, that those people who were far closer to what we would call animals and what we think of as humans in their behavior, um, though they had, gotten, they had gotten smart enough that they could you know, plan certain things for themselves. They weren't completely reactive to their environment. They made tools they were still quite reactive to their environment because that's how they got out of africa um but essentially like there's a lot guiding the behavior of homo sapien that is old school reptilian cortex you know fight or flight stuff uh what is pretty simple um like you know us or them kind of thing and that us or them is like you know, there's this group of people that have been living together around this water hole, you know, with this food source, and somebody else comes along and threatens that. Uh, there was a very practical reason why you were going, if those people weren't interested in cooperating, or there wasn't enough water or food for both groups of Right, or if, a strange, if some strangers showed up, they more or less, they almost always meant trouble. Somebody had to go. Yeah. <laughs> and it's only in the last several hundred years that people have been very mobile at all. It wouldn't, it's not unusual for people to spend their whole life around that same water hole. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is people can't be faulted but for, for so much for being, I guess, sort of provincial to start with because what the attitudes that you and I probably have in common um, are the result of education, I think. I don't think they are, they are generated um, naturally. I think that, uh, that in, a, in a natural state, I've got the same instincts as I could have been born 200,000 years ago. I'm born today. I'm the same template. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's changed is what is available to me um, education-wise. And I'm not just talking about in a school. I'm talking about the assumptions of the culture that I live in, like the basic crap that you're picking up by the time you're five years old about the world um, if, you know, the various behaviors are right, that so much stuff is in place, you know, this early. There are certain tendencies, certain strengths and weaknesses, but we come out a blank slate. And everything that's different about us versus the 200,000 year old homo sapien sapien is a result of experience and education, mm -hmm. right? So we have to cut, we start from scratch every time, you know, and then humans are, um, they are social animals, they have to be. They're not very good at surviving by themselves. Right, that's They have true. to cooperate. You know, the hunter gatherer thing is the men went out and wasted a lot of time trying to kill animals while the women gathered the actual food yeah. <laughs> to sustain the, <laughs> the tribe is the idea, right? Um, so yeah, we do. We have a natural tendency to go to these places, but we also have this, you know, we have this higher brain that makes bigger significance out of this stuff, um, and makes a bigger story out of it. And like, so what is your story? Like, what got you? What were you pursuing? Like, when you when you were a punky punk waver? Or oh, who the hell knows? I've never had a, a roadmap, and I really envy people who have a five-year plan and a long-term goal. They have a vision of what they would like to achieve in their lives. And they have even usually a strategy and how they're going to get that way. That has never been me. Everything that ever happened to me is a pure 
confluence of uh, chance and just sort of happening to be prepared. What did they say? Luck equal is opportunity meets preparedness? preparedness? I, I buy that. That's been me. I think we have that in common. I, I usually use the, the um, metaphor of a surfer. that You can't make the wave come, but you can be ready to ride mm-hmm. it when mm-hmm. it comes. Uh, so the waves that you rode, the first wave was kind of you and Dewey getting out of Pennsylvania? Yeah, thing? we moved here down to down to Richmond, and ended, I ended up staying for Richmond, as you may know, Curtis, is kind of a black hole <laughs> in which the gravitational pull of it is so strong that try as you might to escape, you're eventually going to come back. <laughs> and what, is that, what does that mean to you? I mean, that, okay, you've been in and out of here a few times. Like, I know you've lived in New York for a while, and you've... Is there? Have you lived anywhere else besides New York and Richmond? Over the I lived in San Francisco for just a hot minute, but I had so much unfinished business here, I had to come back. Um, but generally, the first time I lived in Richmond um, was I, you know, didn't know myself very well, and I was extremely poor and didn't have very many resources. Richmond is a terrible place if you cannot leave. It, you feel very. It's very. Uh, What's the word that I'm looking for? It starts with O, and it means kind of weighing down on your shoulders. Oppressive? Oppressive, yes, thank you. It's, it's oppressive if you don't feel like you have any freedom to leave. And so at the time, I hated it. Um, later on, I moved to New York and stayed there for 14 years, and then, out of choice, came back in a much better position with way more personal freedom and a lot more resources. And now I find that Richmond is an excellent place to live. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic to use as your home base. It's super cheap to live here. Um, it's you can ride your bike, bike, bicycle almost anywhere you need to go. It's two hours from the mountains, two hours from the beach, two hours from Washington D.C., three hours from North Carolina. Musically speaking, it's a fantastic place to use as your home base. You can have an, a practice base for not that much money, and it's a day's drive from New York City if you have a show. So, in all of those aspects, it's a very convenient and pleasant place to have a life. Would you say that in, in in some ways, like I mean, I know that I moved to New York um, because I had a a sense that there were uh, pockets of culture up there that were going to be welcoming to me, like a bohemian kind of a place, you know, where everybody was sort of like like minded, you know, artists, musicians, what, and and also people who were being directed by whatever, rather than having a strict strategy and a plan. So I moved into the East Village in like the early '90s, looking for that. And um, Were you watched that. Really I mean, disappointed that was when it pretty was over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When I got there, I was actually able. I got into a, a rent uh, stabilized place, and it was cheap for me to live there. I mean, I was paying less than four hundred dollars a month for rent, and I wow. lived on East Seventh Street. But That's I mean, that was of. totally luck. And yeah. that neighborhood was still sketchy, right? The East Village still had a drug. There were drug dealers on that block that owned the Dominican gang that owned the block that I lived on East on Seventh between B and C. But I'm mentioning that because what what made those areas of new york what they were at one time was like in the 70s new york was damn near like a wasteland mm-hmm. it was so messed up and there's so much crime and there was not enough money and the infrastructure to take care of it or whatever so this sort of anarchical communities grew up somewhat governed by the actual drug dealers and yeah. gangsters yeah. and all of that so it was a great place to go it was cheap to live there because no one wanted to live there Right, I mean, people wanted to live in parts of New York, but they didn't want to live in the East Village. They didn't want to live in um, down there on Delancey Street. They didn't want to live in Chinatown. They didn't, there was a whole bunch of Manhattan people didn't want to live in Hell's Kitchen, mm. whatever. Now that's that's evaporated quite a bit. You have to move 
moved you to Brooklyn, and now people, a lot of people want to live in Brooklyn, so it's getting farther and farther yeah, out. Yeah, Bushwick is now where the artists actually living. The parallel I'm trying to draw here is I think Richmond, the city, is kind of like one of those neighborhoods. Like, people don't really want to live here, so there's not a lot of competition. I mean, there are people who already live here, but there's not this competition to come live in Richmond. There's not a huge amount of money to be made here. Um, it doesn't have this cachet that New York has mm-hmm. that people have gotten this idea from watching Sex in the City or friends that they need to go live there for some reason, you know, to satisfy some role identification. But um but yeah, Richmond's kind of become it's it's so great that it's ba- a little backwards cuz that means that all of these urbane people don't want to come here, mm-hmm. you know? Like yeah, it gives a little bit of breathing room for the actual artists and people that do want to create something without being under all that scrutiny and all that pressure. Yeah, we don't have, like, what's happened in New York. You can't even get a job in New York because all of the trust fund kids whose parents are just bankrolling them mm-hmm. to live and work there for free. And it's shocking to me still. I mean, even even when I was living there, and that was like seven or eight years ago, it was just endless tidal wave of entitled white people with endless amounts of their parents' money. And I was like, even at the time, I was like, when is this going? This cannot go on forever. Yeah. When is this going to end? Surely there's going to be a time when this stops happening, but so far it hasn't. No, it just keeps going, and... Um, that is really pretty surprising that that bubble hasn't popped yet. And I kind of thought 9-11 was going to be the thing that popped that bubble, but it, it didn't. Mm. I guess it even strengthened a lot of people's resolve uh, to stay there on some level. But here we are. We're, we're savvy enough to know Richmond, especially I'm um, at that age where I'm not interested in scrounging and, and scrabbling like I did in New York. And it's not mm. romantic to me as it was. But Yeah, New York is really just for young people and for rich people right now. What did you do the most of the time? Was it always music? Have you always been doing music, or have there been other things you've kind of been... I've always been in a band, um, although it wasn't always a career. I mean, it just sort of, as a matter of course, I've always been in a band, no matter what I was doing. Usually I was working in restaurants, or... I had a really nice job as a carpenter for, for many years, and that was really fun, because... Uh, it appeals to my sense of novelty that as a carpenter you go to a different job site for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or even six months and then you get to move on to the next job site which is a whole new set of challenges and interests and carpentry appeals to me also because it's kind of the polar opposite of music music you are um, you're creating a thing in the moment people are there and they enjoy it and it's all very much very visceral and immediate but then you're done and then the event is over um, and it just, you know, that's that. Carpentry, on the other hand, if, you do, if you're doing it right, you go and you build something, and um, hopefully it's going to be there for 100 years. Yeah, there's something to show for it. Yeah. And that, that, so you did that uh, in New York, you were a carpenter? No. Um, in New York, I mainly just worked, did a couple of odd jobs, and then I ended up being the coat check girl at Don Hills. Which is where I met you. Where's, which is where we met. Um, and that was very... You know, at the time, again, I didn't have a, had no roadmap. The reason I got to be the coach at Girl at Don Hills is because I was playing in Debbie Harry's band. I was living in Chris Stein's basement, which was a block and a half away from there. And Chris and was. This is the 90s, right? This was 1994. Mm-hmm. And so I was in Debbie Harry's band, and this club, Squeezebox, had just opened up just up, this, up the block. And somehow or other, somebody didn't show up for their coat check shift, and I was already friendly with everybody there, so I got the job. And then, you know, one thing led to another, as life, as my life does, one thing led to another, and I ended up being the musical director of the Squeezebox Band, which, if you are not familiar, was a house band in which um, 
every Friday night was squeeze box night, and it was a fantastic pansexual glam this was Don Hills, punk right? extravaganza. Did squeeze yes. box existed as a another bar before it was a night at Don Hills? I thought that's, no, it's, it was always a night at Don Hills. There was a thing in New York at the time in which many nightclubs wouldn't be whatever it was they were every single night of the week. Uh, on Tuesdays they would be you know gay night on wednesdays maybe they would be hip-hop night on right. and dawn's was one of those they had sundays was i don't know reggae night and well that's how thursdays was thursdays was uh, a british night so any fridays uh, don hills was squeeze box yeah and i ended up being the musical director of the squeeze box band which was a house band it, again this was kind of a first um in this particular world there had been already a long tradition of drag queens miming along to different things, but this was the first time, I think, in which drag queens were singing along to a live rock band. So we had a different drag queen singer every week, and they would hopefully get us their cassettes of what they were going to do the week before and give us the week to learn the songs. And we learned five to ten songs every week, which was a fantastic learning experience for me. And we would play with a different singer every week, and it was just the most... Looking back, you know... It was very grueling, hard work, and exhausting and frustrating. Uh, but looking back, it was just the most fantastic learning experience, and I got to play with some incredible performers, including Joey, Jody Arias and Nina Hagen and Lena Lovitch. And I, my mind is blank. I don't even know who else. But it was just just right place, right time, and right vision, and everybody flocked to that place. And, and what just was loved the music? It. What were the songs? That I mean, was it all disco? Or was no, it, like, songs it was actually it? hard hard rock and punk. Um, I'll, you know, quite a just a wide variety of stuff. People would do Sonic Youth to um, to Metallica. And what were the personalities like that were fronting the bands? Uh, I was fortunate to work with some incredible professionals, including Joey Arias and Sherry Vine. And then there was some people who should not have been on any form of stage at all, ever. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that was the whole thing with Squeezebox. It was a grab bag. You did not know what you were going to get. You did know that you were going to be wildly entertained. Yeah. I never. I don't think I ever went to that. I went to Beaver on Thursday nights, and I right. think that's how I saw you there. Uh -huh. and, um, so from how long did... Were you involved in the Squeezebox house band? Mm, I don't even know. Um, probably from after the Debbie Harry band, which was 1994, until I got my gig playing with Moby in 1999. So about five years-ish. And was that was income? Like you actually got paid to be in that house band? And Barely. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't... If I had been there for money, I should have just stayed the coat check girl because the coat check girl made way more money that night. <laughs> right. And were you getting paid to be in, in Debbie Harry's band? Um, yes. I just... I didn't charge her very much because it was such an incredible opportunity. Um, and she... At the time, actually, Blondie had broken up and she had been dumped by her record label who were heartless bastards incredible rip-off artists as most major labels are right um so debbie was kind of it was a real blessing and a curse for her career-wise right then she didn't have really a band or a label or anyone telling her what to do so in a way she was very free she could do whatever she wanted but in another way it was very nerve-wracking for her she didn't know quite in what direction she ought to focus her energies and she's just so incredibly talented in so many ways um so we did a couple i mean i joined her band thinking that we were going to be you know, busy as the Debbie Harry band, but it turned out that she was actually also really busy with, um, she would fly to New York, upstate New York to be in a movie with Liv Tyler, or she would be flying to Rome to be in a fashion show. 
So the Debbie Harry Band as, it's, as an entity wasn't all that busy. But it was a great opportunity for me to actually go to New York and then I finally just decided, well, I guess I'll just stay here and see if I could maybe just work as a musician. So that's how you ended up up there was getting hired by her. Yep. And then, okay, so you did that, you did the squeeze boxing, and then how did the Moby thing happen? Again, um, opportunity meets preparedness. Moby had seen me play in the squeeze box band, and I was also friends with his bass player, Allie, who's the bass player in Stiff Little Fingers. Um, and Allie was, it's a very hard job being road manager of a band. Allie was playing bass for Moby and road managing Moby, and it was a little too much for him, um, so he decided he'd like to give up the bass playing part because it didn't. Um, pay as much as the road managing part I guess so I was I guess one of the first people that they thought of um, I didn't even have to audition I just kind of went over to Moby's house apartment on a Mott Street and we had a little chat talked about this and that and you know okay well it's very nice to meet you I'll see you around and then I got a phone call from his management going well we're going to be on the David Letterman show you know would you be interested in joining for that and I was like hmm let me think yes <laughs> um, and then after that, they called me again, and they were like, um, "We're gonna go play this Woodstock '99 thing. Would you, you know, and then do a six-week tour of the states? Would that be something you'd be interested in?" And again, I'm like, "Well, let me think. Yes." <laughs> and while we were on that six-week tour of the states, all of a sudden, that record of his just exploded. Play. Yes, mm -hmm. another case of right place, right time, and a very interesting strategy, which I'll get to in a minute. But um, all of a sudden, that record was huge all over the states. So all over the world so we finished our six week tour of the states and then things just kept rolling then we went to Europe and then we came back to the states playing bigger venues and then we went back to Europe and then we went to Australia and then we came back to the states and played the biggest venues yet and then we you know it became this whirlwind that lasted for three and a half years so I didn't that wasn't what I'd signed on for but I was totally happy to go for along for the ride it was a fantastic experience and when did that end, that relationship? I, after three and a half years, I couldn't take it anymore. I was just so exhausted. Yeah. Touring so, is really, really exhausting work. Yeah. Too much, like, work, work, and losing the uh, the fun well, part of it. Well, you just feel like, it sounds very glamorous and everything, and it is for the two hours that you're actually on stage. It's a fantastic feeling. There's nothing like it. But the other 22 hours of the day... You are far from home, and usually, if you're on a major tour, you wake up, you're in your bus, you wake up, and you're in a parking lot somewhere out back of a stadium, and which is usually miles from the nearest town, and there's not really anything going on, and you don't really know anybody, so you're kind of stuck there, and you hang around all day, and there's not really anything to do, and then you play, and that's really fun, and then there's a little after party, and then you get back on your bus, and you re like do the whole thing again next day. <coughs> so, from an artistic standpoint it wasn't very satisfying to me on a personal level to be on the road like that some bands are smart they have a little recording studio in the back lounge of their bus and they you know they write songs and they're busy being productive and stuff but this it wasn't a case that just didn't happen to be the case at that time so what was it like my impression of moby's music and i've, I've listened to play i guess my impression of that music is it's not it doesn't require a band to play it um, and I'm not saying that's an accurate impression, um, but then I do remember seeing you guys on the Lollapalooza, right, or Woodstock. I don't know, some kind of yeah. maybe you weren't in this ba in the band yet, but I remember seeing him on a second stage, and he was doing Led Zeppelin, uh, like rock and roll or something. Oh and he yeah, was playing that was us. And, yeah, Moby's yeah. actually Moby. I will say I have nothing but praise for Moby. He's a fantastic 
incredibly talented dude. He plays all the instruments on all of his records. Okay, so he doesn't actually, strictly speaking, need a live band. And, in fact, the first time I saw him, it was just him and his drummer, Scott, uh, playing along to a backing track, basically. And that was exciting enough, because Moby's a very dynamic performer. He runs around a lot and bangs on things. But then when play took off, um, the powers that be decided that it would be a good idea to have a whole live band, just for the visual aspect. It's way more... I mean, if you ever go to a techno show... The most boring thing in the world is to watch some guy playing a laptop. Yeah. It's just such a snooze fest. Um, instead, he had a nine-piece live band and a choreographed light show that just was a giant production and, you know, really was the caliber enough to play these giant stages and keep and make people feel like they got what their money what got their money's worth. So he had he had worked out for the instruments various instruments to be playing the stuff that he had recorded and some of it he had had recorded with instruments it wasn't all samples or uh yeah uh let's skip to the next question <laughs> i don't want to go into the technical aspect of that okay but i will say this about that play record um that was the first record to my knowledge in which each track on it was licensed to um, to be in advertisements, and that actually was the breakthrough for that album. All of a sudden, um, that porcelain song was in some ad or other, and everybody, a lot of people heard it who would not have heard it, mm -hmm. you know, because Moby up to that point had a very respectable career as kind of an electronic, a mid mid level electronic musician. He would sell you know ten thousand records each each time, but then all of a sudden, all of his records, all of his songs were made into were put on commercials, and then. For some reason, that sparked a huge amount of interest, and he was right place, right time also in that he had taken old vintage recordings of vocals and put an updated electronic musical background on them. Mm -hmm. So the songs were really a fantastic sort of combination of old and new, and it was just really something that everybody liked. Nobody didn't like that record. Yeah, my dad likes that record. Right. And it's has, not offensive to anyone. And he has a DVD of it. So you did once you hit a, hit the end of your uh, interest in doing that. What did you do after that? I let's see. Everything's. I have a really terrible memory, but I remember we were home when nine eleven happened, and I woke up and I woke up that morning, and it was a really beautiful day, and I had. Um, flowers on my fire escape and I there was bumblebees doing their thing and I turned on my computer and all of it, and my whole inbox was full of like oh my god are you okay and I was like what what's going on and then I looked out my window a little closer and I saw this giant plume of smoke over the lower Manhattan and I was like oh my god what happened so then I got on the internet and found out you know 9-11 had occurred and everything became very surreal and weird um Although, I w of course, I wasn't affected. I was asleep. So were most of my friends who were musicians. And nobody that I know lives anywhere near the financial district. But it was still just incredibly... Um, it was just so strange. N nothing like that had ever really happened on American soil. Americans didn't know how to take it. And we were all just really shell-shocked. So, did you then say this I got to get out of New York kind of yeah I immediately became like I just need to leave here and so that's I had always kept a house uh, here in Richmond which I that was kind of the impetus of my eventual 
migration back to Richmond. Um, the other thing that uh, contributed to that was that thanks to Pro Tools, it became more and more impossible to actually make a living as a session musician, which is what I had been doing. <clears throat> now all of a sudden, everybody didn't need a band because with Pro Tools, your, your band is in your living room, in your bedroom, yeah. basically. So it became... I used to get hired a lot to do um, showcases where a singer-songwriter would have songs that they needed to perform in front of a record label or a manager, and they didn't have a band, so they would hire a band for the day. Yeah. And that would be, you know, me and a, a few other people. Sidemen. Yeah. So that that work has dried up. I mean, what do you think about the way that the music business is, like, evolving? Like, I mean, does it change for you, like, what it means to be a musician? Or you just say, well, I don't have the same opportunities I did before, and that's okay. You don't, you're not resentful about it. Well, my position is and has always been that clinging to the past is just absolute suicide. You have to just uh, drop yourself into the moment of the day and think, okay, here I am. I've been dropped into this planet, and this time, here's what's going on around me. Now what? Yeah. It's absolutely pointless. Well, things used to be blah, 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 and people used to value blah, 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 and we used to have respect for blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. The reality is what is happening right now and what you're going to do with it. Yeah. So the, the reality is I can't make a living as a professional musician anymore. But the other reality is that lots of people can now express themselves through music in ways that they couldn't afford to before. Granted, there's been a giant tidal wave of incredibly terrible music, <laughs> which is overwhelming and crashing down on my shoulders even as we speak because I work at a, rec a radio station and it's part of my job to filter out that shit. But, uh, you know, it's I'm not going to make a value judgment either way. Um, it's sad that we can't, that professional session musicians who have given their lives to learning their craft can't make a living anymore but you know what did ice men think when refrigerators came refrigerators came right. along you can't you just whine and you can't sue people out of having refrigerators it can't be done the reality progress is going to carry on the world is not going to slow down or go in reverse just for you yeah you have to just deal with it i mean i never had that relationship with playing music that it was ever going to be a way that i made money so for me i've just always been like well this is a beautiful thing you know it's like it's just about music now mm -hmm. it's not about money and you don't have all of these people that i remember kurt cobain said you know there's two kinds of people in the world there are people who really you know really love music and are really into it and and um and it means a lot to them and it's a big part of their life and then they're people who really hate it and don't understand it, and for some reason they're all in the record business. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, and and the reality is, I think a thing people don't think of a lot is that those people really weren't in the music business; they were in the plastic business, they were in the vinyl business, they were in the CD business, mm -hmm. they were in uh, they were in selling those right, it's items. A, it's a resource they could make tangible and sell the tangible items for. Yeah, yeah. that no longer is necessary. It also doesn't accrue the overhead. You don't have to drive or a bunch of records or CDs around the country for music to be. Mm -hmm. You don't need a brick-and-mortar store to right. place them in right. for people to have access to them. It doesn't take up as much resources to make recorded music. It takes zeros and ones on a hard drive. Mm -hmm. You know, Not that you know, analog is great and everything, but you do have this opportunity that you can just get it out there. And you're in a position, though, of working at a radio station that you have to hear more of it than you would like to. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas in my case, I can avoid it completely. Yeah. Like if I, I could just find the stuff that I want to listen to. But so talk about a WRIR. Do you have one show on there or? Two? I do. I didn't. Again, me with the fear of commitment. I didn't want to re to commit to a 
regular show once a week because to me that was too much responsibility because I like to travel and I don't want to have to be in the same place every single week having a two-hour show ready to go. So what I do instead, I have a one-hour, I have a two-hour show once a month and it's a locals only show and then once in a while I will take over somebody else's show in order to showcase the new releases from the metal world and that locals only show is it's all bands from Richmond correct or not Virginia not well I mean I can stretch it you know yeah. if if there's anything tangentially related to Richmond then I'll I'll make it work a band from Minneapolis in fact not mainly I'm sorry from uh, Milwaukee mm-hmm. played on my show the other week and I made that okay because one of them used to live in Richmond and the other one went to school in Richmond is that show on at the same time every it's every month? third Saturday every yeah third from Saturday, five to seven five to seven and, and you have in store I mean in in studio performances we do as oh. you and I were talking earlier Curtis before the mics went on about WRIR and where the money comes from and where it goes and WRIR is actually a completely independent radio station that has its own brick and mortar studio and also has a live room in addition to the actual broadcasting studio so we're able to have live bands in there and record those sets and also broadcast them simultaneously. It's pretty and great. nobody gets paid to do anything there? Nobody gets paid shit. Nope. All the money went volunteer. to equipment, transmitters, mm-hmm. rent, yes. licenses, yes. all of that uh-huh. stuff. They pay a fee, um, something that I don't think is necessary, to um, CMJ, which is... I don't know how I would describe it to a lay That's person. A college music journal? CMJ? Yes. Uh-huh. And there's it's kind of a database where you report every week what has been playing on your station and in return the labels read that they notice that you are playing their records and then they send you more records basically but you have to pay sign up and pay to be on that and i don't personally agree with it i think for myself i mean i have a good enough relationship with the labels that i'm interested in working with they'll they'll just send me downloads and i'll play them no big deal right um i don't i guess not maybe not every um genre of music works like that in the cmj world though yeah, I mean, it does seem like it behooves them to just supply music to this market, and there aren't a lot of outlets for anything but beyond Clear Channel. Exactly. Other than UR's station. Yeah. I don't know what kind of range they well, have. Well, there's plenty of college stations in the world. I don't know how influential any of them are, though. But that was CMJ's thing for a long time, is that they were just kind of getting the records on college radio. Yeah. yeah. What about... And, and WRAR also has... If you don't mind talking about this a I don't little mind. more, just since you're the only, I, I don't know a whole lot about anything except my little world. But I'll, I'll well, talk the public about radio it. aspect of it, they license some shows, like Talk of the Nation. Yes, or? they do license. There's there's a type of subscription that you get, which uh, which gives you access to certain NPR shows, and I, I don't know how many you get to pick, or if someone sends them to you, uh, maybe you. I don't know actually how it works, but we did have Al Jazeera for a little while, and that was kind of a feather in our cap because nobody else really had it. Um, And then for some reason, it went away. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but it wasn't our choice. So I want to want to back up a little bit. I when you talked about 9/11, that was a you know seemed like a pretty emotional moment for you for a minute there to reflect on that. Was I reading that? Yeah, and I don't know why because it's so many years ago, and I never had any. I mean, nothing happened to me personally, and, and I never, but for some reason, I just felt really emotional about it just now. Well, can I, I, I mean, I don't know you super well, and I the most I've ever talked to you is what we've got going on right now. I, based on my, like, experience of, like, living in New York and, 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 and 
brushing up against various subcultures, whatever they call themselves, punk rock or metal or indie rock or whatever. I've I've kind of dipped in all of them and 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 a, and a lot of what is assumed in these cultures is a disdain for America on some level. What is your relationship with being an American and what does it mean to you? Do you just happen to be on this landmass or does it uh I do feel very much like an outsider considering I was born and raised overseas and then when we got to this country I was always an outsider and we also didn't have a television. So I'm definitely in a position where I haven't been really immersed in American culture. Um and I looking at America now I just I mainly feel a sense of um disappointment. I feel like America could have been such an amazing amazing country. We have so many resources, a lot of intelligence and uh, we're not, you know, stuck in hidebound ways of doing things. But unfortunately, it just so happened that we became slaves and victims of basically capitalism you think that wild. fight's over and like that's it's done the ship sailed we have you become know, that because i mean you and me are sitting right here and we live here yeah and we're not the only people that feel the way we do and we're not the only people that think the way we do and we are americans we count as americans uh we may not be with the stereotype that people think of you know that bible thumping flag waving white anglo-saxon protestant you know homophobe <laughs> and all of those things but that's that may be a large amount of people who have been programmed and brought up that way, but there's a lot of other things in this country. It's always been this mixture. You know, I find, like, hope in that, that there's still people who are pushing against that very self-interested commercial force that mm-hmm. is out there. It, You know, you've got, you know, for lack of a better word, corporations, it, you have that influence. It's a large financial concern, and they're pushing shit in the government. And they're controlling shit in communities, and they're having a huge impact on these communities. They're also the like the only game in town in some of these communities, and they have it. They're actually sort of, and this is what I mean by being sort of a um, a different kind of fascism. You <laughs> know, like this strange kind of capitalist, mm, where fascism. you have really no uh, no alternative. What's driving it is not what we imagined in Orwell that that there's just some weird fate, like bleak gray sort of dehumanizing entity that's the government it's that actually this is stuff we think we want that is gener that some people want has generated this undue level like people have fed a lot of their resources into these companies and given them this power like they've given taken their power from the government and given them to these companies and then these companies are wielding this power like you know to keep the company going because on some level i was having this conversation with my roommate they think they're wanted because they're like americans want what we got like, I mean, I'm just playing sort of a devil's advocate. I don't know. I don't think Monsanto cares if people want their product or not. I just think they care about making money. They, right. But in order to make money, somebody's got to want what they sell. You know, there has to be a demand for what they're selling. And that demand's coming from somewhere. And, like, I'm I'm not, like, excusing or anything. I'm just I- exploring this a little differently, that this has happened, that, that in some degrees this has been, this is a um, a paradigm that has been created by, a certain section of America, but we still have the opportunity to create a different paradigm. <laughs> First, we have to recognize it's not the government that's mm-hmm. doing this. It's private... Corporations. It's corporations. Uh-huh. And corporations are also aren't some evil entity like they're shown to be in like a Pink Floyd video. They're a bunch of selfish people who have pooled their resources to take care of themselves. And they're just being selfish territory animals that are trying to 
you know, do what's a natural thing for animals to do, but we've let that on some level happen because we've the conversation's always about government and not enough about mm. them. Uh-huh. But that's that's changing a lot, I think. That we are talking, you and me are talking like this. I put this podcast up there. People can listen to it on the internet. We're communicating with each other through Facebook. So far, no one's really restricting this dialogue between citizens of this country that don't agree with that shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, a day doesn't go by. There's not something about Monsanto in my Facebook feed. you know. And so there's a lot of people who care about this and are worried about that. And I, it gives me hope. I mean, I don't, I don't like that an aspect of America is like it is, but I don't think the ship sailed mm-hmm. at all. I mean, do you feel that way? Well, um, I was feeling quite despairing. Um, but then I guess when Occupy started to happen, I became kind of excited and a little bit hopeful that maybe it didn't have to quite be like that. And I'm actually very excited about the young people, the, young, the kids these days. <laughs> um, you know, they seem to... Uh, they're pretty bright, and they have a lot of resources at their disposal in form in the terms of networking. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, we're we're having this conversation basically the day after this Texas filibuster, in which somebody twittered a certain point of order, and somebody's somebody else's office saw the Twitter and was able to bring that into the discussion that was happening at the moment in the Senate, which was unheard of. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. So, I mean, as far as the United States empire, um, you know, I don't know a whole lot about world history, but in general, empires last for a couple of hundred years and then they crumble. I kind of feel like it's time for the U.S. to crumble and for something else to take its place. There's a, a sort of a reverse uh, exponential thing going on, like the Egyptians were like, you know, I don't know what, 3,000 years and the Romans were so many thousands of years and gradually. But this... If we separate these out into brands, like the Roman Empire or the English Empire, yes. But this is a continuation of, of stuff. Like, to me, it's not, it never ended. Like, it's getting moved around and named different things. I mean, most of Western Europe was a, what was left of the Roman Empire after the Roman Empire collapsed. And it isn't like their, uh, their inertia completely stopped mm. there. It's just, it got separated into enclaves and pockets of... England and France and uh-huh. Germany. Name different names. And that shit came here. You know, we're not, America's not some thing that just sprung right, uh-huh. up out of, uh-huh. it's, you know, it's a, it's a continuation of Western, I'm doing the quotation things, which nobody can see, but Western civilization. And I use that because somebody asked Gandhi what, what he thought of Western civilization. And he said, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> you know, and so a, a certain set of values that has been constant you know, regardless of what you're calling the empire or the country or whatever, they're human. They're human things. Different people have, have you know, wielded them and benefited from them and whatever, and been at different levels of enlightenment around it. Like Romans got, you know, by some people's definitions, fairly civilized, you know, and organized with what they were doing, and then that fell apart. Mm-hmm. You know, it got it lost its center or whatever, and there were a lot of other people who, you know, came in to unseat that and push that aside but to me it's kind of a fine i mean it's it's a stream of sort of one one thing and it grows up to a certain point and then it loses its focus mm-hmm. and i think that's kind of m- more what's happened here in america at least that's the, the hopeful <laughs> way and maybe i'm a pollyanna it comes to that but i i see you and i are products of this country you know and we see things the way we do and we're not the only two people 
in this country. There are 350 million people in this country, and a significant percentage of them feel like we do, mm -hmm. that this could be better, you know, and, and this is not what we signed up for. And, it's <laughs> and this definitely is, not what we want. Yeah. Right. And that that's not, nobody's stopping that, you know. It isn't the default, you know. It's, it, it's not what you're really, it's not what's encouraged in school, at least in the, you know, the language that we talk about it. And it's not, it's not what's coming down from the authority, you know. But here we are, we're, you know, in our, like, bordering on, I guess, we're grown-ups, you know, well, <laughs> well into that, you know. And we have, like, a legacy to pass on of, like, that, that thinking you know to people who are younger and, and to take part in that and and my thinking isn't that like this has all got to go like baby with the bathwater. i think people have just i mean in general think people have lost their way you know that it's it's not a matter of evil it's a matter of like just apathy laziness and selfishness mm -hmm. which is destructive but it's it, i i don't think it's um sinister hmm. necessarily mm -hmm. but um I mean, you don't, so you don't really, right now, like, being an American is a, um, you see yourself as geographically an American, but not... I don't see myself as an American. I see myself as a citizen of the world. And I realize how pretentious and shit for brains that sounds, but I don't feel a sense of nationalism. Yeah, the, I'm kind of with you on that. I mean, it is one human race on the exactly. planet. And I don't give a shit if anybody thinks that sounds hippy-dippy. It happens to be a fact, you know? There's... There's only one race of people on this planet. It's a human race. Their breeding populations got isolated, developed their own cultures. But w what's been great about this landmass over here is they've been able to mix quite a bit and bring their influences from mm -hmm. all over and encounter the pre the indigenous people um, that were here. So I don't know. I think I'm hopeful for the this, the human race to stop viewing things in such provincial ways even it would be amazing nationalistic if ways yeah. i think it is very gradually happening but again you know this is it's movement if things look the great thing is things do have to change mm -hmm. you know they can't stay the same the same way that the music industry has changed and a new paradigm is and this isn't really a new paradigm it's an old paradigm people used to f play instruments and they traveled around like robert johnson he'd never be on the radio you know the guy that invented even before that they had wandering wandering minstrels that's right and people threw them some bread, and you know they got they stayed here and they stayed there, and they wandered around and played music. That was, they, you know, they were the bard, you know, whatever. And um, this is really, it's much longer. It's been like that than it was this period of fifty years where you could write a song, own the publishing, and sit back and collect money every time it got played on a ch clear channel radio station. Right. I don't think people are necessarily entitled to that, you know. We I mean, agree on that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the focus of your locals only shows. Um, local bands is there any do you keep it in any kind of type of music i mean is it metal is it punk is it you know well i like i'm partial to metal and it's been uh in the last few years you know i've been in music for a really long time and i you know sometimes I, I get to thinking well you know have we pretty much gone as far as we can go with guitar bass and drums have we reached the limits of i mean hardcore came along everybody's playing as fast as they can and then uh, in the last several years, it's some new developments have occurred. One is black metal and one is doom metal. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me. Black metal is actually really interesting stuff. It's, uh, if you're not familiar, the listener, it's um, basically the drums are super, super fast. And so are each individual stroke. 
but the music itself is very subtle and almost symphonic in a way. It's very intellectual and very interestingly put together. You wouldn't necessarily think about that the first time you see a black metal band. You're just going to hear a lot of banging and yelling. But it's actually very interesting and very well thought out music, and it's a technique that has not been done before. Um, likewise, I was raised on punk and hardcore, and so I've spent my entire career playing fast. And doom metal, again, the listener, if you're not familiar, um, if you would take a Black Sabbath record and turn it down to 16 speed, basically, everything is played as slow as possible, everything is tuned way down low, so it's just kind of this almost subsonic wash of frequencies just way washing over you. Um, I think of doom coming out of like Electric Funeral, which is like the slowest... Black yeah, Sabbath song, right? Something like that. that it's a progression from that. But what, what is the underlying musical? It's like blues, super, super slowed down. I don't even know if it has a particular genre that you could say that about it. I hear, like, I'm in a doom band currently, and if you were to speed up our songs and put them in regular tuning, they'd be pop songs. Yeah. There's that much melody and that many hooks. There's an aesthetic that you're reaching for, an extreme of an aesthetic with both doom and black metal. I didn't really know this about black metal. Like what I, until I saw the movie, um, what is it called? The one that's sort of about Varg and, and oh, Aramis yeah. and uh, I forget the name of it. I know uh, what you're something talking about. The light in the northern sky, or something, or that is an album title. It's uh, not until the light takes us. Yes. And I knew about the Lords of Chaos book, which is, talks about all the crazy shit that was going on in. Th those Scandinavian countries, black metal came from specifically Norway. Mm -hmm. Originally, Norwegian black metal. As far as I know, don't quote me on that because I don't know that much about the well, history. Swedish I just know black metal like. and Norwegian black metal. Yeah. Do you know? And um, the when I saw this movie, the guy who's in jail the, that was um, Burzum and Varg. Varg, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's saying I was going for the coldest possible sound, the worst most terrible microphones I could find record on the he, you know he really wanted yeah. this it almost sounds like what God by Voices would say about the way they recorded like he wasn't just some kid screwing around yeah and you can say that about the very dawn of punk as well it was a reaction against what was existing and they wanted to make something that sounded really, sounded really ugly and they also didn't have a lot of a choice because they weren't going to get into a million dollar studio so like what can I do with what I got that you know like, how can I make the best out of what I got? I make a dollar out of 15 cents, which mm. has always been the kind of a driving rock and roll thing. But black metal, right, is very... And it's also like, no, we're not blues at all. We don't come out of this thing. We come out of the Norwegian, Scandinavian, like, Viking tradition. Like, we we don't want churches around here. We're, we're, we believe in Odin, and we believe in... Right, they're pre-Christian. Right, they're pre-Christian. And that's where all of the church burning came from, is that they, they were politically you know even though they were kids like what mm -hmm. 16 17 years yeah, old they seem to feel as though the catholic church basically invaded their land and their traditions so it's pretty fascinating but that particular guy varg uh got crazy enough that he stabbed a friend of his in the forehead uh i believe and, and then, he's in jail still yeah. yes <laughs> still making records though <laughs> and then and doom yeah I'm f so that's a super super slow um, and you're really getting into the nuances of something that isn't you don't think of as being nuanced. It's a very interesting. I never until I tried to play Doom, it never dawned on me how difficult it was. Yeah. The act of restraint and having it's especially hard for drummers because drummers get nervous if there's any empty space. Mm -hmm. And so for Doom, drumming is really stressful for a drummer. <laughs> yes. 
I'm familiar with that. I, I actually tried to play something similar because of I Hate God. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you consider them doom, but they played that slow and parts of their songs, they varied between hardcore and and super, super, you know. Yeah. And it, something's, na- the heartbeat of like 4-4 four, four time is kind of natural, you know, to just keep that up. Right. You know, and the faster you go, even if you fuck it up, nobody can really tell. Like, you know, it's gone by so fast. But like, yeah, down slowed down to that it becomes unnatural it's really difficult it's very very hard to play to show that much restraint it's a lot of discipline yeah in it and that's drug lord that is drug lord right and um is drug lord is correct this is the only the band that you're doing yeah it's the only band i'm in right now and uh what's going on with drug lord there thank you for asking as a matter (laughs) of fact i don't know why again right right place right time we um about a couple, year and a half ago, it changed. We recorded a little demo thing here, here in the space in which we're sitting right now, and um, somebody in Virginia Beach wanted to put it out on vinyl, which is unheard of. So we said, absolutely, if you want to take the risk and put it out on vinyl, by all means, go for it. So that happened. Um, that record is called Motherfucker Rising, and now we are about to go record another record, and somebody else wants to put this one out on vinyl. Again, shocker. No, did not see this coming. And who did is not that? even what aim are the for it. Two labels. What's the one? Um, from? Last Anthem is our label in Virginia Beach on Last which Anthem. Motherfucker yeah. Rising a- a- occurs. And, oh man. Is that a full length or like a... It's about a five, six song EP. And and, and those being Doom songs are like... that's They're a like of... seven minutes long each. <laughs> 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 and the new one, I'm really embarrassed. I'm having a brain cramp. The guy's name is Steve and I forget the name of his label. So don't quote me on this part at all. Well, we can always pause and you can look it up if you really want to. Yeah, I'd have to go on the internet on my little shitty phone. We'll do that while we're talking. I mean, we right. this is a, a podcast, you know, we're not going out live, so who cares? Actually, do you want to pause it because I can't yeah, do two things uh, at once? Hold on a second. Okay, so uh, we we haven't found out what the name of the label is. Right, I'm waiting for a text back from my guys who have better memories than I do. But we started talking about, um, what were we just talking about? Uh, drug Lord. Drug Lord. You were yeah. just asking. Oh, by the way, Drug Lord is a trio, which is my favorite type of band to be in. I've been in many different formations of. I never, actually, I've never been in a just a duo, but a trio is a fantastic uh, arrangement for a band because there's never any taking sides. It's very easy to make decisions, and if you all have to cram into the same car with all your gear, you can do it. <laughs> it's a fairly balanced uh, level of influence. Does it matter what the instruments are? Is it just the personalities? Personalities. Like, yeah. Definitely. My, it, I'm, I feel very lucky. My singer, songwriter, Tommy Hamilton. Um, again, it's a very interesting story how this all came to be. But, it, you know, looking back at the history of my life and, of course, everybody else's life, looking back, you always feel like, there was, oh, yeah, there's a definite step A and step B, and then that led to step C. Just so happens, in this case, um, I was in a band that played South by Southwest where I saw a band called Gruel, who were from Florida, and the singer-songwriter was Tommy Hamilton of that band. And I, th- I loved Gruel so much that I ran up to them after the sh- after they were done, and I was like, Oh my God, you guys are the best thing I've ever seen. If you can ever, if you ever come to Richmond, let me know, and I'll, I'll do anything I can to help you get a show, and blah, blah, blah. Basically, total teenage fandom. Um, <laughs> but they did actually eventually uh, go out of, they left Tallahassee and made a, made a tour, and I put them on um, at the club, which is now the Nile. At the time, it was called the Hole in the Wall. So they played the show, and then they stayed at my house, and we, we stayed friends. Tommy eventually left Florida with his wife, and they lived in, I want to say Danville, where Caroline uh, was teaching. And then they eventually moved to Richmond. And this was like over a decade later, but I still knew Tommy, and I was still a huge fan of his songwriting and his skills. And 
we eventually became and I hooked him up with my old drummer Bobby from Unseen Force because Tommy was looking for someone to play with and that went pretty well for them and eventually they were ready to have a bass player so then they got back in touch with me so now here I am in a band with the drummer that I played with 25 years ago in the hardcore band Unseen Force and one of my favorite singer-songwriters Tommy Hamilton and it's I'm just very pleased so Unseen Force you handed me an Unseen Force CD mm -hmm. when I came in here and I know that you were in the, that band but I don't know a lot it band. was a hardcore band. It was at the dawn of the crossover between hardcore and metal, which at the time was a huge scandal. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were really upset about it. Um, so Unseen Force was mainly a hardcore band with a couple of lashings of metal influence. And where is that? Who who are the bands that kind of represent that? Would you, uh, the, that cross of hardcore and metal? Like I think. It's oh, geez, Coc, uh -huh. Dri. I remember the Obsessed was kind of a scandal. Uh, everybody thought they were too metal. They would be playing shows in the hardcore scene in yes. D.C. Because they're from D.C. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Wino um, fronted that band or formed that band? I think so. Uh, and he's still got a career. Yeah. So he went, He's had a 50,000 different bands, but pretty much it's like the same <laughs> band. But he was in St. Vitus, too, which named themselves after Black Sabbath. Right. And they were doing a doom kind of... Uh, both St. Vitus and The Obsessed were mm -hmm. doomish. Like, kind of proto-doom, right? I guess. Yeah. Well, what's pro... I don't know. I, I mean, mean like, I don't really know. Don't... Again, I I know what I know. My right. my pool of learning is extremely narrow but deep. For example, I know every single note on the Deep Purple Machine Head record, but don't ask me about any Black Sabbath albums. Right. Each you know individually, I don't. Honest to God, sue me, but I don't know Black Sabbath that well. Yeah. Well, you don't have to, but for some reason, it seems to me, and the way I would trace it is like, off out of Black Sabbath came like two strains of you know, what people call either stone or doom, you know, sludge, like all this kind of stuff is somewhere around the early nineties when sleep uh, came around and they were, they came out of the Bay area in San Francisco. They brought back some of this, like the, those two kinds of Sabbath songs, like the Sabbath had a, a swingy kind of blues based thing, like fairies wear boots or whatever, you know, that it was like, da -dun, da -dun, da -dun, you know, that swing kind of a thing. And uh, the first sleep song dragon was like, was mm. that, but they also did slow, like, feedback, like, plotting stuff that's like Electric Funeral, which is, I think, on the first Black Sabbath record, but I'm, I'm not sure. But, like, yeah. I thought I was into this stuff for, like, I guess a while, and uh, I le leaned towards the stuff that had more of a s groove swing thing to it. My best friend leaned more towards the Doom. He really, he was like, oh, it's so slow, <laughs> you know, and so low. He really liked that. It's like... Uh -huh. And it's like it, it's a form of meditation. It like, really is, especially if you go see a live band like Cough. They just wash over you. Your pants legs are flapping in the breeze. And yes. It's just this total sensory experience. I call it transcendental metal meditation. Kind of is. That and Sleep did it with that song that's both called Dope Smoker in Jerusalem. I just listened to that last night. Yeah. <laughs> I can never stay awake through the whole thing though. But it's like it's like chanting. It's like circular breathing. Uh -huh. It's like. Uh, it's like a mantra. It's like saying, I mean, and there's a spinoff from Sleep called Ohm, which, and it is an Ohm kind of a thing. I mean, there's something about, like, we want to make sound. We want to meditate on the sound. We don't want to, you know, move to this and move to that and be so fast. We want to, like, take some time here and, like, you know, check out this sonic mandala we're making here out of, like, intention, you know, mm -hmm. and, like, space. And, like, there's so much. Three guys can make a hell of a lot of 
space yeah. out of I really uh, like the new Ohm record by the way it's one of my favorites this year what's it called uh um, not Ayurvedic songs, but oh, come on, brain! But look, there they go. They're calling this stuff Ar- Ayurvedic. They know that it's you know there is a, there is some spiritual kind of a practice underlying. Well, the first person. song on it is a Buddhist chant, yeah. which is underlined underlay, which they underlay with some electronic electric instruments. Also, on the new record of Ohm is some cello, which sounds amazing. And they've been a two piece for a really long time. Yeah, and, and now so now they're bringing in some other instrumentation, and you've heard Earth before, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, they do stuff with just feedback. It's like they're not even striking. I don't even think they're like taking a pick to the strings or. Yeah, it's a whole, like. and then you know, not so far removed from that is there's a whole noi- noise underground scene, which I kind of I don't really get the music, but I've been to a couple of noise house shows, and it's so interesting. You know, granted, it's super boring to watch a guy play a laptop, but I've seen a guy play a suitcase full of effects pedals, and it totally electrified and really moved the audience that was watching. Some of mm-hmm. these people were practically crying. They just found it so um, emotionally vibrant, and it related to them so much. Like, I mean, I think that's it's so is, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it is. It's it's kind of like. The the uh, the shaman guy sitting in the middle of the the circle of people around the campfire producing some kind of a an effect on them and it yeah. you know it does go back if the if the person is onto something and they got something it's not like just any old shithead can get up there and and just start making noise I mean there does you got the name there? yes our new record label on which our new record is going to be called I think the record is going to be called Intervenus it's going to be on STB Records Did you say Intervenus Intervenus yeah. Okay, not intervenous to Milo. <laughs> you know what that is? No. That's a Spinal Tap record. Oh God, really? <laughs> oh shit, really? Yeah. Well, this no intravenous. Intravenous right? to Milo. Yeah, yeah. no. Ours would be intervenous. There's a difference. Okay. Um, that's like a vein, like Venus, or like the planet Venus. The Venus, the yeah. Well, actually, yeah. We think it's going to be called that. That's the name of one of our songs, but we haven't fully decided what the album's going to be called and we also don't have the artwork for it yet so you've been i mean you've been to one of these places like new york where a lot of different intentions are producing different like sometimes similar intentions are producing different music like people are looking for the same i mean the merging right all right let's start with the merging of like metal well, we we're talking about unseen force most people are drawn to music because they want an emotional release or they want to feel a bonding with other like-minded people and they don't want people telling them where that stops and starts either, right? Increasingly, like this happened with a hardcore and metal at, around the time of Unseen Force, right? So mm-hmm. the, the lines started to blur there. Yeah. And, you know, the hardcore, the hardcore, hidebound hardcore purists, if you will, were really upset about that. And but what were those? What is a hidebound hard, hardcore purist in your words or your experience? Uh, you know, just somebody who that's not hardcore, that's not punk rock, you're blah blah blah, you reject you because your song has more than three parts. <laughs> <laughs> and so, who were the, I mean, DC is considered like kind of where hardcore began. Do I have that right? Is it sort of. I am not qualified to say yes or no to that. Me neither, but we can, I think we can. that hardcore sprang up kind of independently because this was pre-MTV and right. there wasn't that much scrutiny. So there was a number of local scenes that were able to have to kind of 
individually invent their own version of hardcore without necessarily dissing anybody else's. So it's Discord... But Discord was certainly, you know, primary. Yeah, and Minor Threat, yeah. right? Is, and and they're... I mean, you could just say, I mean, it's just like, it's getting... It's everything getting faster and faster and more naked kind of a, mm-hmm. aggression. And those guys were fairly politicized. They were, like, anti-certain things. I mean, I remember them being straight edge. Like, they were anti-alcohol and drugs and... Like, is, w- do you consider that essential to hardcore? Like having a, um, th- did it seem like that to you then that there had there was an overall sort of uniform kind of? It doesn't matter what I consider essential to hardcore because for me to say something like that, I would be the one imposing rules, which is what I'm against. Well, I mean, what did you perceive? I'm, I guess is what I'm asking you. And you were there, you know, you were a, you were a contemporary. I was that. in a hardcore what band at like the time. You? We thought, I mean, everybody drew on influences from all the other bands that were current at the time. And I don't think that any of us really thought too far ahead or imagined that we were going to be leaving any kind of legacy. I really thought, I felt like we were all just making music that was exciting to us and we were kind of building our own scene. When we had the chance, we would go to other towns and play with our friends and stay at other people's houses. And as far as I knew, that was as far as it went. Yeah, I don't think that we thought... We are now making a great social statement. This is the voice of our generation, and mm-hmm. this is what people are going to look back at. You know, so I don't think Did anybody you really considered people like the, that in the hardcore scene. Mm, huh. I'm sure there's always people who consider themselves spokespersons of right the, their particular movement. Did you meet? I mean, you were an eyewitness to this. I'm not asking you to judge it or to be a rock critic. I'm just kind of like, do you remember what it felt like or seemed like at that time? Because you do describe a there were people who were scandalized or pissed that what was considered a distinct thing, you know, metal, which I'm guessing is like thrash metal, like yeah. Slayer, you know, maybe early Metallica over here. I don't remember anybody having a diatribe or, you know, a manifesto about any of that stuff. I it just, just remember, awkward, I remember like, a bunch collision. of kids just making the music that they wanted to and, of course, gossiping about other people. Right. Because that's just human nature. So the shaved head kids with their T-shirts showed up at, at the same show as the kids with the cut-off denim jacket mm-hmm. showed up, and for a little while it was awkward. But then there became a thing. That In was, Richmond, you know, it became very quickly became fine because Richmond's just not big enough to have that many different social strata. I mean, we would have. There was a band called the Alternatives that, for lack of a better word, were just kind of this freeform jazz wonk noise. Mm-hmm. For some reason, they got under the same umbrella with a band like unseen force and we would often play on bills with a band called burma jam which were like a punk reggae band yeah and at the time nobody really thought much of it and i actually love it when bands don't have to all sound like each other and that was the awesome thing about the vcu scene at that time because i remember that you could go to twisters and you'd see burma jam plate and alternatives right. and king sour and right. all of that and there were people i think outside of this town put some labels on it like because you had honor roll which was a hard were they considered a hardcore band do you remember i don't think they were i don't even know what they would have been considered but they became breadwinner yeah members of of that went on to be yeah be breadwinner and breadwinner were doing something with metal riffs and they became math rock actually hard actually honor roll might have been like one of the very first math rock e-bands and Richmond, of course, is pretty well known for math rock. Yeah, from out like when I went when I was in New York, like working place, people like you're from Richmond, and the first thing that people at, at the record label I worked at knew about was Pen Honor Rollings. Roll. Yeah, 
and and then they did did know, and there was some crossover <laughs> at that label with Merge Records, so they knew about Breadwinner also, uh-huh. you know, because I think they put out some Breadwinner. I just saw Penn, and you speaking of legends, Penn is like a he's a he's a gem. If you don't know the listener, Penn Rawlings was the guitar player in Honor Roll. He's pretty much credited for having discovered almost his own style of guitar playing that's kind of angular and jangly and for some reason he's just completely influential and people will travel for thousands of miles to see him play which he almost never does um and he was in breadwinner then loincloth and now i just saw him actually at the copy shop where he works he's now in a new thing called bowl ethereal bowl ethereal like the word bowl and then the word ethereal but if you say it together you're lisping bowl ethereal (laughs) 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 and he explained the whole concept to me and he's a genius pen rawlings is a straight up genius i will absolutely say that with no no qualifications whatsoever um he the strat here's the strategy all the songs are 60 seconds or less they are he played me a couple of them totally math rock and their strategy is they're going to they're going to approach a couple of record labels and their plan is to have to release three seven inch records each a month after each other and there'll be well basically that's it and the the cover of the first one is not a there's no picture of any of the band members it's just a picture of their equipment on a on a white background nice <laughs> so they're just going to come to a label and they're going to okay we have a 3 7 inch deal after that it's done you're going to put out a 7 inch every month for us for 3 3 months and cool. somebody is going to say yes, and it's going to be absolutely, absolutely, absolutely and, and, you know, spectacular. Math rock is something that gets imposed from the outside on the uh, on the pen, but I don't think he was ever the kind of guy that sat down and went, "Okay, uh, I'm mapping this out with a slide rule and a graph paper." It was a f- his own instinct about you know timing and stuff. Like he's yeah. putting emphasis where he wanted to, and. And he developed his own style around that. There was there wasn't any egghead shit going on there. I mean, there's a actually a pretty mirthful thing if you watched him play with like uh, Breadwinner and stuff. I mean, all of those guys were smiling. You know, yeah. was like this is hilarious. And Penn is the most anti rock star rock star you'll ever yeah. meet in your life. He has no interest in being famous. Yeah, he is. Uh, and yet, the less interested he is in being in the public eye, the more people want to seek him right, out where and is he? be yeah. part of him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Drug Lord then has. Um, this one that's on the first label, which I've we have recorded, fortunately, so everybody already heard this, um, is out. Mm-hmm. It has been out. The Motherfucker Rising LP has been out for probably a year now. Available at, at your at local it is. vinyl stores. It's and available at local vinyl stores and on Bandcamp as well. And you can order it online. Yeah. Um, and then there's the, the Inner Venus. The new one will be coming out on STB Records. It's out of New Jersey. And the guy is mostly known up to now he's been doing represses of small small presses of various stuff that he really likes and will be his first all original new release right on shows coming up moratorium on those because richmond is really is over really it's too easy to overdo it in richmond and also my other guys i'm the single one but they're married with kids and it's a little bit difficult for them schedule wise to leave town for very long and drop some names on some Richmond bands that I might need to know about that I don't know about because I just heard of like Windhand and mm, and Cough. And yeah, well, I've heard of Cough. They well, were around before I left. But. The big ones right now, and I'm really proud of all of these people. They've uh, somebody. Some people are on relapse already. Um, Windhand, Cough, and Interarma have been around for quite a while and very dedicated. They tour all the time and they and they're it's paying. They're off. all on the same label. They're actually on. Again, don't quote me on this, but I think Windhand and Cough are both on. 
relapse and interarma might be on don't quote me i'm gonna make a fool out of myself you're not making a fool out of yourself (laughs) no judgment here man but the the point i'm trying (laughs) to make is they've been they've been working hard and it's paying off for them with increased distribution and recognition so good for them um so up and coming bands to look out for my current favorite local band is unsacred who are the drummers only 21 um, but all of them are really good musicians excellent performers and they kind of play black metal with some unusual stuff thrown in they just played last night at strange matter and that's why i was up really late and i'm all fuzzy today <laughs> ah. well i uh thank you for taking some time with me to talk to me in the practice space and get into all of this stuff and i i got a lot more questions for you so maybe we'll have to do another we could do it edition two another time yeah yeah but uh let's uh let's wrap it up now thanks thanks for listening folks <laughs>